I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm the host of the Jewish History Matters podcast. Before we get into this episode, I want to take a moment to let you know that we've launched a fundraising drive for the podcast for the month of November. These days, when there are no in-person events on campuses or in the wider community, and conferences are off the calendar too, it's more important than ever to foster the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. And I've just been so thrilled to be able to do this with this project, which has just been so successful. With over 55 episodes and counting, we've reached tens of thousands of people with our message about the ways history matters. In October 2020 alone, we had almost 6,000 total downloads, nearly double of a year ago. And we've accomplished this with the support of people like you, people who've subscribed to the podcast and shared it, people who've listened in and liked it on social media, and people who've offered their support and sustained this initiative. Working with the University of Texas at Austin, where I'm currently based, we've launched a charitable fundraising campaign to support the project, to fund the current season and look forward towards the future. I hope you'll consider offering support to make sure we can continue to produce great episodes like this one. The easiest way to get to the campaign is to go to jewishhistory.fm slash contribute, which will take you to our crowdfunding site at UT. I want to thank you so much for your support of the podcast. By listening in, by telling your friends about it, and by supporting it financially, if you're able. I hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to sharing more with you in the future. Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Francesca Trivellato for a wide-ranging conversation about the history of Jews and finance in early modern Europe and its ramifications for today. We'll approach this issue through the lens of her recent book, The Promise and Peril of Credit, What a Forgotten Legend About Jews and Finance Tells Us About the Making of European Commercial Society. It's a fascinating account of the history of bills of exchange in early modern Europe, which were a mechanism for merchants to exchange goods, services, and money over long distances. And it deals specifically with the long-standing myth that Jews invented them. And this might seem like a fascinating but niche topic, but it really isn't. It provides a door into a wide-ranging conversation about economic history and what it teaches us in the biggest terms about the relationship between the nuts and bolts of the economy and the myths that surround often opaque processes and instruments, and ultimately about how these myths have staying power that resonates in terms of the public conception about how the world works from the 17th century to the 2008 financial crisis. And then, of course, there's the question of what all of this means 
when we throw Jews into the equation. The fact that Jews were associated with financial instruments like bills of exchange is part of a much longer history about the place of Jews in European culture, anti-Semitism, and anti-Judaism, and the role of myths in society at large. Francesca Trivellato is a historian of early modern Italy and continental Europe, focusing on the organization and culture of the marketplace in the pre-industrial world. She is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor in the School of Historical Studies at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, and her books include The Familiarity of Strangers, The Sephardic Diaspora, Livorno, and Cross-Cultural Trade in the Early Modern Period, which appeared in 2009, and her 2019 book, which we're discussing today, The Promise and Peril of Credit, which was awarded the 2020 Jacques Barzun Book Prize in Cultural History by the American Philosophical Society. I really am so excited to share this discussion on the podcast today. We start out by considering the nature of bills of exchange and what financial innovation means in historical perspective. And in particular, we focus on how finance in both early modern Europe and also today operates on an asymmetry of information and access before turning to the question about what the early modern myth that Jews invented bills of exchange means. And then we bring it all together by thinking about why myths persist and how this relates to our own lives when we live in a world where misinformation and conspiracy theories and just plain out falsehoods and lies are prevalent. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, Francesca. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here. Oh, well, thank you for joining me. I think that this is such a fascinating topic and there's so much to talk about here. I feel like we're going to have a lot more to say than we have time for in an hour. But that I think just really reflects um, how interesting it is thinking about the history of bills of exchange and, and all these different things. Now, what I want to start us off with is is actually what you start the preface to the book with, which I think is a really compelling way of drawing us into this history, uh, which is that you open up by thinking about the 2008 financial crisis. I just think this is so fascinating how we can connect uh, history with the present. For the first time in, in several decades, in the aftermath of the 2008 global recession, and even more so today that we're living you know, in the heyday of the coronavirus pandemic, we are all, again, uh, all too aware. Uh, we all have an extremely tangible appreciation for the kind of radical uncertainty and for the fear of market distortion with which people of the medieval and early modern past lived uh, every day to reconnect with uh, the world that uh, sometimes uh, historians call the world we have lost uh, became a little easier not to flatten the differences between the past and the present, which is absolutely not uh, my intention, but to, to reconnect the possibility of seeing where some of the predicaments of today may have come from. 
The book on a larger scale is an attempt to think about persistence and change. Financial innovation today is very rapid in the pre-modern period uh, was lower, but it did occur. So bills of exchange emerge from earlier credit instruments and at the same time introduce some real innovations. And they evolve, say, between the late 13th to the early 17th centuries when they evolve the most. And, and my story really picks up in the middle of the 17th century when they are mature as contractual forms. So one thing I want to take away is that uh, there are periods of uh, financial innovation that there's a cultural grappling with these innovations. And there are very complex societal and political and legal, particular legal changes that occur as a result of these uh, slow but very important uh, changes in the financial arrangements because uh, particularly the individuals who get to use them and the modalities that get to be used. I mean, it's fairly difficult to describe uh, how bills of exchange worked without a blackboard or a PowerPoint slide. This is not a traditional economic history book, but there's a section, there's a chapter. The first chapter, it's, it's a fairly thick description of uh, how these instruments work because I didn't want it to be a book about anxiety about credit in general. I wanted to explain the specific types of credit relations and fears and problems that these specific instruments are generated, because I think uh, the devil is in the detail. I do think that it would be useful to talk about what exactly we mean in, in specific detail about bills of exchange, because I think that one of the interesting things that, that you're doing in the book is not just talking about ideas about credit, right? But but you're talking about actual specific historical examples. In order to do that, we need to be very historically specific in terms of understanding how these things work, not just in theory, but also in practice. Exactly. Because the ideas, be they accurate or complete, you know, distortion, as we will see, come from the complexities of the actual instruments that become more and more widespread. And so people see these instruments circulating and they fantasize about them. So, so bills of exchange were devices that allowed merchants to transfer funds, either to purchase some goods or to settle some debts from one location to another without transporting coins or bullion. So that was an incredibly useful idea, incredibly useful device, because they didn't have to risk that the coins that they would normally put either, I don't know, on the back of a horse or on board of a ship, uh, you know, they wouldn't normally risk that those coins would be robbed, confiscated by a corrupt custom officials or just sunk because of, um, of a shipwreck. Moreover, upon arrival at destination, uh, the funds would be made available in local currency. So the beauty of the Bill of Exchange was at the same time credit contract, because you would buy that in one location, your agent would cash it at a later moment in time at another location, and a currency exchange conversion. 
So it was a cashless payment, but because of technology of the time, this cashless payment, unlike those of today, it was not instantaneous. So today, when you make a cashless payment with your credit card abroad, the exchange rate is whatever the exchange rate is set in that exact moment. So if you use your credit card in a supermarket in a foreign town, that's it. Now, there's a risk involved in bills of exchanges this time because you would you know, buy, physically buy a bill of exchange, which is a piece of paper, at a certain currency exchange at a certain moment in a certain time. And then you would send it physically because you have to transport things in this time period. You would send it on a boat or on a donkey. It still has to go somewhere. But by the time it arrives at destination, the exchange rate might have changed. So the risk involved in this transaction is such that only certain merchants involved in international transactions who have a lot of agents here and there that they can gather information can bear the risks of these potential, you know, what if by the time the bill of exchange arrive at destination, there had a war has broke out and you lose a lot of money in the currency exchange rate. So the first uh, kind of risk that people perceive is a real one, that you need to be part of an exclusive club that can harness information that is not public in order to be able to conduct these transactions. That's very important to our story. Very, very important. There's a materiality that is, you know, these are, these are very tiny, uh, thin pieces of paper that are smaller than a personal check today. Uh, so materially, they have no value. You know, they're pieces of paper and they're scribbled, you know, kind of chicken hand or handwriting, very hard to decipher for non-specialists. They're written in technical words that if you're not a merchant banker yourself, you don't quite know how to decipher. So non-specialists uh, have a hard time figuring out uh, what this means. And that's a connection, and we'll, we'll make the transition slowly. That's a connection with how Christians perceive Jews, you know, this opacity. The idea that, you know, there's an analogy here that Jews in Judaism are hard to decipher. They have their own language. They do their own rites that are inscrutable. Uh, and finally, the last thing I'll say about bills of exchange is that precisely at the time when this legend about which we're about to talk emerges, in some cities in Europe, particularly in Lyon and then in some cities, small towns near Genoa, there emerges some financial fairs. These are seasonal fairs where instead of trading goods, textiles, cows, whatever you normally buy and sell at seasonal fairs, a small, very selective groups of bankers buy and sell bills of exchange. I believe is the first historical instance of financialization, as we understand it in the sense of the divorce between what we call the real economy and high finance. That is, bills of exchange at these financial fairs are bought and sold as form of speculation 
on what is currency arbitrage, on differences in currency exchange, with no relation, with no attempt to buy and sell goods. So again, there's a perception, particularly because of the very deep tradition of Aristotelian theory in early modern European society. Aristotle said international trade is good because by nature, some regions are endowed with different goods and different raw materials, but the trade of money for money is usurious. So, you know, there's a notion that finance as such is uh, a speculative enterprise that uh, is not uh, to the benefit of society at all. You know, this is the promise and the peril. Uh, These are innovations. These are financial innovation that facilitated exchange, you know, across regions that had the potential of benefiting everybody uh, and have the potential of enlarging the social groups who could, the more you can trade, the fewer people who get hungry. But at the same time, there is the the peril element uh, resides in the hidden forces that seem to govern these processes and that, uh, and from these hidden forces, there are, you know, these conspiracy theories that emerge and that give rise to the less... uh, benign ideas associated with bills of exchange. As you're talking about this, I'm thinking about this question about why it is that bills of exchange matter. What is the the significance of, of this particular kind of financial tool and its history? And I can think of a handful of things that I think are really important, which is that I think that for most people, I think that today we tend to think of the economy, so to speak, in very abstract terms whether we're talking about the economy as a whole or whether we're talking about how it is that financial activity actually takes place. But I think that this history of bills of exchange really focuses us on the nuts and bolts, so to speak, about how it is that commerce takes place. It doesn't just happen. It's not just a thing that that exists. And I think that that even today, as things become, for instance, more computerized, you know, we have more and more layers of abstraction from the actual process of what does it take to transfer like $1,000 when you write a check or something like that, that it's a very complex process. In many ways, the history of economics indicates the ways in which these tools are um, and have been for many centuries uh, very opaque. And I think that this has a ramification, both in terms of thinking about the history of the opacity of finance uh, in terms of how it actually works and also the way in which there's limited access to these tools. Like you said, that there's only like a very select class of people who can actually make use of these tools. And again, bringing it up towards the present. And I think it's it's not just a question of, you know, how do we make it relevant to the listener or to, to scholars who don't study the early modern period? But ultimately, I think it raises these big questions about how it is that we understand notions like economy, the economy, how we understand notions like uh, this question of access that I think have really big ramifications for understanding the history of hundreds of years ago and also understanding our own present. I think, Jason, the, the last point you mentioned is, is one on which we may want to uh, dwell for the purpose of this um, conversation is what uh, economists technically call asymmetry of information. We live today at the beginning of the 21st century a moment in which technologically we've never had uh, uh, such ability to spread information 
geographically and across social groups as we've had today. And yet uh, we've become, at least some of us, painfully aware of how unequal, in spite of the technological ability, uh, information is. The degrees to which uh, advanced economies and liberal uh, pluralistic societies are economically stratified is in part the result of this phenomenon. Technological innovations that have the potential of facilitating access to the market, the potential of those innovation has been uh, captured by certain group. In principle, um, anybody who, say, in the United States has um, pension funds invested in the stock market, which is a very significant portion of the U.S. population, could trade those funds if they have a smartphone. And there even are certain uh, advocates uh, in the public sphere who encourage that behavior, at least that idealized behavior, when uh, the stock market is a a very complex uh, institution and the intermediaries have a very privileged information. That, to me, is the most uh, you know, blatant example of um, how technology per se, uh, without uh, governing institutions, uh, uh, does not solve or certainly doesn't equalize access to the market. Uh, a considerable reason for the 2008 recession was uh, the sale of less than transparent uh, mortgage and loans uh, to individuals and families who were uh, not uh, able to in fact afford or at least uh, were you know pred- you know by predatory lenders because the industry was significantly underregulated uh, so who gets uh, to be scrutinized and who di- who doesn't is uh, a result of uh, choices that are made by political institutions. We do not live in a free market. I mean, that's just a slogan. And uh, intermediaries uh, can have um, incredibly, mono, if not monopolistic, certainly oligopolistic uh, positions uh, to the idea that we made a transition from a pre-modern mercantilistic <laughs> uh, sets of societies uh, to a free market uh, capitalist uh, world uh, when uh, we are living in such a regulated sets of markets, except who are the beneficiary of those regulations. Yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the things that you're stressing here, um, and it comes out in the book as well, is the way in which things like a bill of exchange, it's not just uh, some kind of historical artifact, uh, but it tells us about the nature of uh, financial innovation. You just were talking about, you know, subprime mortgages and, uh, you know, things like that. To a large extent, I think that the recent economic crisis, I mean, it's 12 years ago now, it's not really recent, I suppose. Um, There have been more recent economic crises uh, since then, but still, you know, the 2008 crash has been, to some extent, pegged on the misuse of new financial tools and and instruments that were fundamentally opaque and which took advantage of people. 
And I think that part of what you're talking about here is really two things. The first one is the nature of financial innovation and the way in which those financial innovations are actually opaque, but also perceived as opaque by the public. And then I guess the third thing is is how they have an impact on people's lives in a real way. And I think I don't know if, if you want to comment briefly on that question about how it is that we can look at a history of early modern commerce and finance and take a lesson from it in terms of understanding this broad question of how we understand change and innovation that is still taking place uh, in the financial markets. I think that the two takeaway I would suggest matter the most are first that uh, financial innovation do not produce instantaneously an equalization of access to the market and that uh, what economic historians, economists call a symmetry of information persist even when there is a significant leap in uh, technological information in financial market. And second, that financial innovation can actually produce a cultural backlash And uh, the legend that I examine in the book is, in effect, a cultural backlash. And to be sure, the recent years in uh, U.S. history uh, speak to the kind of cultural backlash that mature capitalism has produced. Yeah, I mean, I think um, this brings us to the question of how Jews fit into this story in a way that obviously this is a podcast that's about Jewish history. And I think that that when I look at this book and when I when I think about the research and the, the research that you've done and the argument that you're making, it's about multiple things. Right? It's about the history of bills of exchange and credit in general. This is, of course, what we've been talking about for the past few minutes. But it's also very much about the legends, the myths about Jews as it relates to the history of finance, uh, specifically the myth that Jews had invented the bill of exchange. And then ultimately, I think that it engages with this issue about popular ideas and myths about financial activity in general. It might be useful. um, Maybe you want to say a few words about the connection between these, these different things, and particularly how it is that Jews and Jewish history play a part in terms of thinking about bills of exchange and the history of finance and economics. Interestingly, this is not a medieval legend, and I'll, I'll tell you why this matters, although that might have uh, appeared to some, including myself, as uh, initially as a possibility. The first time this narrative appears in print, it may have circulated orally, that's not something we can ascertain, was in 1647, and in a collection of maritime laws, so it's not a, you know, a vehement uh, anti-Semitic uh, uh, Franciscan uh, preaching orations or uh, Shakespearean uh, or, or play or something of that sort. It's a collection of maritime laws, fairly neutral kind of legal text. I was printed in Bordeaux in the southwest of France and the location and the timing matter. And in a long section of the commentary, the lawyer who wrote it devoted a a long section of this commentary to the origins of bills of exchange. And it tells a story in which medieval Jews who were expelled from France supposedly, according to the story, invented uh, bills of exchange in order to salvage their assets 
and uses very theologically inflected anti-Semitic language. So in this version, you can tell this is not, you know, somebody could praise them for having invented this. That's not the case. The story continues. Uh, it's about seven pages of printed uh, um, material. It continues to say that Christians uh, found, some Christians found this invention very useful and started to imitate the wicked Jews. And uh, by imitating the Jews, they became even worse than Jews. And that's another trope that does go back to the Middle Ages. There's a famous uh, Latin uh, uh, phrase uh, that says uh, Jews uh, sort of, uh, that accuse certain Christian, there's even a verb, peius judaizare, of being worse than, than Jews. So factually, this story is absolutely untrue, which is, in my view, one of the reasons why economic historians overlooked it, because they know better. They've known better for some time. And logically, it's completely incongruous. The dates are wrong. There's plenty of uh, idiosyncrasies. In fact, by the middle of the 17th century in Europe, uh, learned authors knew enough about the history of commerce to know that this story didn't hold. And yet, this book, which today is largely forgotten, was a huge success. And the story really picked up, so much so that it survived through many permutations through the early 20th century. Uh, this was not an outright condemnation of credit and of bills of exchange. There were plenty of those at the time. There were intransigent theologians. There were voices that still railed against uh, uh, as you said, usury and uh, and commerce. This was a lawyer in a commercial port city that was trying to use, misguided as it was, this uh, story in, as an allegory in an attempt to condemn certain forms of credit by reaching for these uh, anti-Semitic tropes to distinguish between uh, credit that was done properly. He speaks very positively of Christian merchants in other pages of his commentary, and he's trying to draw an impossible line between uh, positive contributions of merchants and not. And this is another lesson for the present. There have been call to dismantle capitalism in recent years. But I would say that the vast majority of people who live in capitalist countries want capitalism that works for Main Street as much as for Wall Street. And I would say that in horrible language, this is what this commentary was. And that's, I think, in, in my reading, this is why it actually was successful. The fact that it could use an anti-Semitic trope in order to make the point, it speaks to the generalized anti-Semitism of the time. But it was not a marginal 
ultra-conservative, if you wish, condemnation of credit, because by then in the 17th century, those ultra-conservative condemnations were not going to go viral in the way in which this legend actually went viral. There's a lot to think about there. I think that part of what you're saying here is that that the idea that the bills of exchange have been invented by Jews, you know, this myth really uses the Jews as a symbol. You know, it's like a code really more than anything else. So I guess like, why is this important? What does this tell us about like how people viewed commerce at this time uh, and also how they viewed Jews? So anti-Semitism was so ingrained, that is to say, could be activated, if you wish, uh, at any time. But the tropes changed. And so this legend activated both some old medieval tropes and some more recent, some actually quintessentially early modern tropes, which were new. The idea of invisibility in particular is what linked bills of exchange to the Christian perception of Jews in the early modern period, and particularly in the region of Bordeaux. So in general, I mean, Christians always viewed uh, Jews and Jewish rights as inscrutable, right? So in the middle of the 17th century, the Venetian rabbi Leon Modena wrote a book on Jewish rights for Christians to try to explain you know, Jewish customs and Jewish religion, but that only went so far. But uh, Jewish invisibility had a very literal meaning in 17th century Bordeaux, because in the year 1550, the king of France had allowed those uh, new Christians, conversos, who were fleeing the Spanish and the Portuguese Inquisition to settle in the southwest of France, but to settle there only under the guise of Portuguese merchants. That's actually the term used in the charter issued by the king. So they were there as Portuguese merchants, but their genuine Christian Catholic identity was always suspect and scrutinized. They were always suspected of being so-called crypto-Jews. Also, their political affiliation and political loyalty was doubted because France and Spain were constantly at war. So the immateriality of bills of exchange which moved so swiftly across the space and that through these complex financial operations that we evoked could uh, transform money in one currency into another currency, make it available from one place to another. You know, there was a certain cunningness and mystery about it. And the analogy between the opacity and the mysteriousness of Jews and Judaism was easy to displace between bills of exchange was easy to displace it onto Jews. And as a result, I think that the the duplicitous and unscrutable nature of Jews and particularly of converses worked well as a way of uh, bringing up 
without even mentioning the fears that bills of exchange could elicit. In a sense, these are very specifically early modern uh, ideas about, you know, sort of tropes of anti-Semitism. But, uh, you know, the 17th century, the 17th century in Europe is really a century of dissimulation because the Reformation, you know, created uh, these strict confessionalization groups. So uh, both among Christian groups and particularly between Christian and Jews, but many had to dissimulate their inner uh, spiritual faith in order to conform to the outward religion. Moreover, what Jonathan Israel famously called the early modern philo-Semitic mercantilism that a number of European states enacted brought together in a number of European port cities a certain degree of mixing of different religious groups for the purpose of uh, enhancing trade and therefore the you know fiscal income of various states and so the under the edges of the policies of tolerations you know Jews and Christians got to trade together more and more and as we were saying the legend is kind of a backlash and an attempt to push back against this mixing and so to to imagine the bills of exchange might have been invented by Jews in the Middle Ages, is to recover a time. Uh, Middle Ages here are half real and half invented. And the real part is a time not when Jews invented bills of exchange, but when Jews had to wear a badge, when the boundaries between Jews and Christian were much more fixed than in the early modern period, when there was real much less invisibility, except obviously when there were the conversionary crisis in Iberia that set in motion this fear of invisibility. And so to imagine a time when these boundaries uh, between Jews and, and, and Christians were clear, the part that is completely fictional is that in the Middle Ages, the merchants who handled bills of exchange the most were Italians, were the Medici bankers, uh, were the bankers who went to the Fair of Champagne. So Jews were mostly, especially during the commercial revolution of the Middle Ages of the 13th century, by then Jews were primarily relegated to pawnbroking. So that's the completely invented Middle Ages. There's so much to dive into here. It's such a fascinating instance, both in terms of thinking about the early modern period and the early modern imagination of the Middle Ages, right, which is very critical uh, when we understand and think about that the entire notion of modernity was invented in early modern times through the self-contrast between early modernity and you know, the so-called Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. And this, of course, is fundamental to understanding modernity as a whole. Uh, and I think that you're illustrating some of the ways in which people are looking backwards from the perspective of, say, the 17th century and, and trying to understand themselves by contrasting their world with uh, an, an imagined past. So that's one thing to think about here. But there's ways in which this speaks to a whole range of issues, which I don't think we have enough time to dive into all of them. But I'll mention just a couple of them and you can pick maybe where, where we want to go. You know, I think that something really important here has to do with thinking about the association of Jews with commerce and what that represents. And this this stretches back to the Middle Ages. 
you mentioned before how the association of Jews with uh, uh, bills of exchange was not like some kind of Franciscan anti-Jewish perspective in and of itself, right? It, it was perhaps utilizing anti-Jewish tropes, but it was not motivated by anti-Judaism. I think that's part of what you were saying here. But but it's situating this myth about the Jews and this myth about commerce within a longer history that stretches from the Lateran Council up until the 20th century, where you have Jews associated with communism, also Jews associated with capitalism. Right? That's in many ways the heart of the paradoxical Nazi anti-Semitic ideology is the association of Jews both you know, paradoxically with communism and with capitalism. I guess part of what I'm asking here is if maybe you want to illuminate a bit about how this particular instance helps us to understand this history of how Jews are a code for how non-Jews understand commerce and economic activity from the Middle Ages basically up until the present. I'll uh, like to make two small remarks. I mean, anti-Semitism as all forms of prejudice is both persistent and malleable. It's always there, and yet it changes. It can actually take many forms in the very same time and place. The legend is not at the root of anything. Uh, It is one manifestation of a moment in which a certain conjuncture of new changes in the social, legal, and political landscape calls for a remixing of old tropes and an addition of new tropes. And in fact, the subsequent uh, variations of the legend end up adding uh, new elements and revising old elements. And uh, sadly, so we go on. The legend itself is not uh, the root of say, a new form of anti-Semitism linked to a new phenomena, but it, it draws from pre-existing tropes. It adds new tropes in order to answer to questions of the time. And then in subsequent versions of it, there's new mixing and so on. Unfortunately, the story continues. The second remark that has been made uh, uh, certainly many times is that uh, the founders of modern social thought, giants of the like of Marx and Weber and Zombart, they all reached for Jews and Judaism to think with as they were outlining their grand theories. Uh, For somebody like me, who is primarily as a a historian of the early modern period, it is striking that as much as uh, Marx, Weber, and Zombart disagreed on most to think, they all agreed on focusing on the 16th century as a turning point in uh, his most important work, which is uh, The Modern Capitalism, a text that is not translated into English, The Moderne Capitalism, Zombert to think that that period is still pre-capitalistic, unlike 
Marx and Weber. But just the fact that he makes that argument is because he's forced to make that argument because that's where the crux of the matter is. And obviously in his notorious and fundamentally flooded book on uh, Jews and the economic life, Zombert instead thinks that that's when Jews invented capitalism. So they use history and the role that Jews had in history as a way of thinking about the difference between, because they're interested in modern capitalism as a sort of a qualitative difference mode of life because they're living through it, because they're living through the second industrial revolution because in the continent. What I think it's important in many ways, for me at least, is that we go back to that genealogy to make sure we're aware of where we come from as we think about these topics. Obviously, economic history in the field of Jewish history has, for very obvious and legitimate reasons, a complicated legacy. But this book, it's really, it's really not a book about economic history, except for the chapter in which I describe the mechanism of bills of exchange. It's mostly a book about economic thought, and it's mostly a book about how Europeans saw the economic role of Jews, but it also wants to be in this maybe a bit of a divergence from what you and the rest of the audience may be interested in. It's also a book about the history of European economic thought in terms of the canon. It's really an attempt to reintegrate Jews and the images of the Jews in uh, a history of European economic thought that tends to see the period of the 17th and 18th century as a period of secularization and the emergence what it's called first the science of commerce and then the political economy as very secular and increasingly autonomous sphere in which religion is increasingly shed and separated. So my attempt is here is to show in part two things. One concern is with the importance of texts and authors that have been excised from the canon but also with topics such as um, why Jews have been written out, although they appear in text, and what is why the allegorical importance of Jews that is used in order to define what is proper credit, which is not exactly a marginal topic in European economic uh, thought. Who is a gentleman in the commercial sphere? What is an upright merchant? How do you define a legitimate economic transaction? Most of the time is defined as the opposite of something Jewish, but that is not something that has entered into the mainstream literature in the field of European economic thought. I'm not sure this book will be able to transform that field There's a lot of resistance to this idea, but it's my small attempt to inject a perspective that really comes from the texts. Yeah, I mean, I think um, part of what you're getting at here is the way in which the image of Jews is so important in terms of understanding how Christians in Europe 
understood themselves and understood the economic developments taking place around them. You know, part of the question here is, what is the meaning of this legend and why does it persist? I think part of what you were saying before was that this legend that Jews invented uh, bills of exchange reflects the anxieties that Christians felt, you know, about the the word you used was mixture between Jews and non-Jews in the society, invisibility, and so on. So this is very specific to early modern Europe, to the question of crypto-Jews, the notion that there could be Christians out there who aren't really Christians. But as you point out, this myth persists in many ways long beyond that very specific moment. So when you talk about it in terms of the myth or the legend in its specific historical context, what do we learn also from the fact that this legend persists long beyond it? Well, first, I should say that there, you know, there have been a number, for example, of feminist scholars who had done uh, quite a lot of work on uh, gender metaphors in the realm of credit in early modern Europe. So whenever there are uh, big uh, speculation uh, bubbles that burst, for example, Daniel Defoe, coined the term lady credit. Uh, He was such a famous uh, essayist and journalist uh, um, because um, women's uh, irrationality became uh, a symptom of the exuberance uh, of, uh, you know, the easiness with which people pour their money into credit schemes that then burst into thin air. That was the 1720 South Sea bubble. And, you know, if you look at the text, it's interesting that Jews and that anti-Semitic language and and gender languages, they're not in competition with one another. So uh, first I wanted to say that, you know, I was just trying, you know, I don't think one or the other are mutually exclusive, but there is this, um, somehow they belong to different scholarly tradition. Uh, It was hard for me to to incorporate both, uh, but I did try to to you know to pay dues and, and and to mention it at least and in this short conversation I wanted to make sure uh, we mention it because it is in some ways uh, it's always the minorities of one kind or another whether demographic or or not that tend to be used in order to represent uh, the least respectable aspects of credit relations. Can I jump on that just really quickly? And I want you to come back to the persistence. One thing that what you're just saying is just so striking is the way in which the image of credit, and this I think is true both about early modernity, it's even true about today, is that that the image of credit, it tracks not only financial ability to pay, but also a set of assumptions about character. And that xenophobia and misogyny are critical for understanding this because this is where we can see social assumptions about the nature of good character, whether that's religion or gender-based or whatever, playing out in ways that it's not just about dollars and cents or whatever currency that we're thinking about, but that ultimately the characterization of people with good credit as being of particular race or religion or sex, gender, whatever. And we see this playing out over and over again in terms of access to credit and I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but I just think this is an important issue. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, we didn't mention it earlier because we were talking strictly about finance, but that's probably the deepest footprint of the pre-modern period in the modern world. I mean, there's so many 
you know, experiments that uh, have been done with people sending out, you know, anonymous CVs, people looking for jobs and, and undercover, you know, discovering how much racial biases there is or how many ethnic and racial minorities who have had to build their profile. Because, you know, the credit scores is just not enough. And if you work in a certain kind of industry that has a, you know, front window kind of uh, situation, this is just, uh, it's been aggravated in certain instances. So I don't even know where to begin. It's just the societies in which we live in that has this um, formal equality and uh, everyday reality. In some ways, the early modern period was one in which the blatant discrimination was what was inscribed in the law. And then, but I'm not, I'm not idealizing it quite on the contrary, but that's exactly when credit ratings began in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, they did begin as description of character in their verbal descriptions. That's what they were about fundamentally before they became numbers and the transition was, it's an interesting process. Yeah. But I mean, I think that part of what you're getting at here, and this might bring us back to this question about the persistence of the legend that Jews invented uh, bills of exchange is I think that what you are saying is that the association of Jews with bad financial instruments, so to speak, or, you know, Jews and women, you know, with bad credit or, or whatever, that these things persist into modernity in ways that people don't realize or recognize. That there's this line that we can draw between early modern financial markets and practices with the challenges that, that we face even up until the present. Well, that's exactly right. And I, um, in my reading, uh, the gist of the story is... An allegory that tries the impossible, that is to separate the good and the bad forms of credit. And that's why the legend is successful, because its moral lesson is one that would be the language that we would be unacceptable to us today. Although, if we think of, say, the anti-Chinese language that has been used during the pandemic. Uh, clearly, we still have uh, a long way to go in terms of uh, using uh, xenophobic language today or racialized language today. But we wouldn't use this language of the legend today because it's blatantly anti-Semitic, most of us. But we would hold on to a story that tells us that, yes, we can have good financial instruments that make our pension funds grow over time. So once we retire, we can have a few comfortable years, but uh, we don't have to worry about it without having you know, to renounce capitalism completely and face possible autarky or something like that. That's sort of the morale of the story. And uh, the idealization of the market as uh, one that is um, completely impersonal and perfectly accessible to everybody in which everybody has uh, the same ability to acquire information and govern their destinies. That was an illusion of the height of the uh, liberal 
moment of the late 19th century of a certain uh, elite class uh, that devised a certain uh, sets of models. But today, those models are not only very idealized, but there are very few economists who, most economists study market failures and, and know that they have to predict how things will go wrong, okay? So those of us who are humanists should not uh, imagine that economists today are <laughs> neoclassical economists, that that is not the case. So probably the most famous metaphor in the history of the Western economic thought is Adam Smith's invisible hand. So one of the reasons why I emphasize Jews' invisibility as the anchor, as an analogy between uh, bills of exchange and Jews' invisibility, is because outside of a small circle of scholars, few know that in fact, Adam Smith only used the expression invisible hand three times across his many writings in three different works with three different meanings, one of which was ironic. It was only in the post-war period in the 1950s that the expression invisible hand became the go-to metaphor to express the meaning of free market competitive economy thanks to the most popular economics textbook for many generations written by Paul Samuelson, the economics novel laureate, and then revised in multiple edition. So actually, this is a story of transformation. In some ways, it's the making of a legend, or at least it's an invention of tradition, as Eric Opspen will call it. And one thing I tried to do in this book is to show how for the 300 years before Paul Samuelson's textbook, the most common metaphor in the European economic literature was the invisibility of Jews and the invisibility of bills of exchange. And it was a metaphor that had a much darker message. And invisibility did not have this translucent, optimistic notion that in the way not that Adam Smith infused it with, but in the way in which we, in the second half of the 20th century, adopted it, you know, the meaning that we gave it. So I think that it's important, just it's yet another way in which, you know, if we bring Jews to bear to the history of European economic thought, we see that some of the big tropes, some of the pillars of what we think is the heritage of our tradition, you know, can still be scrutinized again. And in fact, we come away with what is fundamentally a very different story. And that this is not just uh, adding a comma, you know, after the 2008 recession, after the pandemic, it's time for academic work to do what needs to do and, you know, to 
inform a larger public that we have been living in the shadow of pretty gigantic myths, even in the <laughs> very disenchanted 20 and 21st centuries. Yeah, I, I feel like I wish we had another hour to get into this specific issue, but we don't. I mean, I think, I mean, there are many levels to it. The image of invisibility is is so important and we could interrogate what that means in different modes. But I think an even more important element here is the power of myth, the power of false information, which we started out this conversation talking about the asymmetry of information. That's one thing about how there's a disconnect between different groups who know different things, right, or who access to certain kinds of information. But there's also the way in which false ideas and myths matter and have this uh, this social power. You know, people historically have believed things which are not true, right? Even true today that you have you know conspiracy theorists who believe all sorts of really wacky things. Again, without getting into it, tied into the idea of invisibility, right? This is uh, true about modern anti-Semitism, right? This this notion of invisible Jewish power, or this is true about you know even contemporary crazy theories like the you know totally false QAnon theory, you know, which is in many ways a rebranding of anti-Semitic conspiracies. But anyway, the point is that I think that part of what's interesting about what you're talking about here, you know, you started off thinking about how this legend or this myth about the Jews inventing a bill of exchange, you know, how that persists over time and how that has a power. Is there something that we can learn from that in terms of how this image of Jews and bills of exchange illuminates just the power of false ideas in society and their power at large? I'll admit that um, this question, I find it chilling to speak about this uh, six days after the supposed uh, final counting of the 2020 U.S. presidential election, when we're still told that uh, those counting were not true. So, you know, that's yet another example in which um, we have the modern technology to count the votes, and yet... uh, we have powerful voices that delegitimize. So, you know, it is um, one of the last chapter in the book is about uh, the reception and um, engagement with the legend in the 19th century. I, and I conclude by saying that it is extraordinary that we think of the, particularly the second half of the 19th century, as the age of positivism. And yet, uh, it's really not the time when the legend is dismantled. In fact, all these uh, German scholars who are supposed to be the philologists, you know, none of, uh, we didn't talk about it, but the French lawyer who spread this rumor, so to speak, attributed it to a 14th century Florentine chronicle who was not exempt from anti-Semitism and had his own authoritativeness. And uh, until the 1970s, nobody took the trouble to verify whether this admitted in proliferous, so, you know, take some time to go verify it, Florentine Chronicle had ever said that Jews invented bills of exchange. In fact, it never did. So all these 19th century supposed supposedly positivist Gustav Schmuller in the first place, which is the one who 
really legitimized the legend. And then uh, the person from whom uh, Zombart took it just repeats it as a matter of fact. So what happens during the late 19th century is that a moral tale, because in the early modern period, this is really a moral tale, in the late 19th century becomes a fact. It's just the echoes with the present, yet again, are extraordinary because at a time when we would expect academic scholarship to begin and to dismantle the myth that uh, the early modern scholars didn't quite have the use of footnote and uh, access to library and to intertextuality and all those kind of things. While it sounded that uh, they didn't do it themselves, and Schmuller writes without footnotes, and he just writes, this is what happened. And everybody repeats because the great Schmuller said it. And so the story goes. And authoritativeness replace footnoting and, and uh, credibility as we would think it today in terms of scholarly practices. So the paradoxes are infinite and to some extent frightening. I think this is something that, that I emphasize a lot when I teach my students, when I, when I think about these issues and when I'm writing and so on. I think a major trend in terms of what scholars have been unearthing now for over a generation is the way in which knowledge or information that is not exactly true has great social power. This is related to uh, thinking on the relationship between history and memory, or this idea that the past which is remembered may not be accurate, but it has great social power. Now, you mentioned before invented traditions you know, in the history of nationalism, uh, which is an area that I think about all the time. You know, there's all of these ideas about the past which are either made up, fabricated, or just not true, but which still motivate people in ways that are really profound and powerful. I think that part of what you're emphasizing here, maybe if you wanted to say a quick word as a way to, you know, to finish off this conversation, is what is going on here in terms of the power of this myth that Jews invented the bills of exchange, and why is it that it was so powerful and what it then teaches us about not just economic history or something so constrained, and I'll say constrained in quotes because it is not that is a huge field, right? But what does that teach us about the power of myth in terms of shaping the world? Well, unfortunately, because of the time period and the sources I have available, I don't have access to oral popular culture. So my work is necessarily restrained to an elite culture. This is a time where the vast majority of population is uh, illiterate. I mean, there have been obviously scholars, you know, fantastic scholars like Natalie Zeman Davis, somehow Carla Ginsburg, E.P. Thompson, who have used uh, very creatively other sources to access uh, illiterate peasant and popular culture. And uh, there is no doubt that anti-Semitism had, you know, popular reverberations. I've tried in every possible way to imagine how to access some possible pre-existence of this legend or somehow, where did this guy got it? I mean, I have a, a manuscript that existed of the printed version. And in that manuscript of the book, there's no mention of the Jewish origin. So I've 
I have no way of knowing what happened between the manuscript and the printing versions of the book, which is very frustrating. I mean, Bordeaux was near Spain. Did he hear the story? What happened? This is a this is very hard for those of us who would like to get to some mentality of the people, if you wish. Even the persistence of the legend that I study, it's still with, you know, I get through the encyclopedia, I get through, there's a chapter in which I, I study the diffusion of this story throughout Europe in various languages and in various countries. But, you know, I get Beccaria, the author of the first treatise against the death penalty and the torture. But these are, you know, a small stratosphere of intellectuals, the thin crust across Europe. I mean, I did once gave a talk here in Austin, Texas. Is that right? So when I was at the very beginning of this project, I presented it. And uh, my host said, I heard this story in synagogue one day. There could be one day a project to do about distant reverberation. I mean, there's a Jewish version of the legend that is told in very proud terms. And it begins at the very end of the late 18th century. And throughout the 19th century, there are two Jewish versions, one that rejects the legend that say, no, this is tainted. We don't want this. And one that belongs to the kind of Jewish contributions to civilization that says, yes, look what we gave you guys. You know, aren't we great? There's far more to explore. For the 19th century, I barely scratched the surface. So as we come closer in time, and the 19th century, you know, there are almanacs and there, you know, I don't read Yiddish. There may be ways in which maybe it spread to Central and Eastern Europe. I don't know. I mean, those financial instruments weren't as widespread there. But I do not have the sources to get into the popular echoes and receptions. I just want to say thank you for this really great conversation. I think we started off obviously focusing specifically on the history of the bills of exchange, but I think we've ended here in a way, this conversation, again, I'll put ends in quotes because I feel like this is just the beginning of this whole set of issues where I think that, that you really indicated the, the broad implications of what you're thinking about. And this issue, it's not just about bills of exchange. It's really about the power of information and of myth. Well, thank you, Jason, for helping navigate the endlessly fascinating and complicating relation between the past and the present, because they do inform each other. And the way we look at the past is always, in my view, you know, shaped in some ways, conscious and unconscious by what happens around us and by how we, each of us sees what happens around us. So thank you for this uh, opportunity. And thank you for all you're doing with this podcast for all of us. And thanks to you for listening in to this episode with Francesca Trivellato. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.